Welcome to TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks so much for listening. Today, our series on environmental law and commercial real estate continues with a topic that, honestly, I didn't know a whole lot about, vapor intrusion. Our guest, the Dallas-based environmental lawyer Jill Codvis, will define for us what vapor intrusion is, why it's harmful, and what actions you can take if you find your property has a vapor intrusion issue. If you're joining us for the first time, this is the fourth installment of a five-part series with Jill, who has successfully resolved hundreds of environmental law matters in her career, including due diligence issues, risk minimization and liability transfer, vapor intrusion, our topic today, and more. Her clients have included Aldi, Weitzman, Dart, Digital Realty Trust, Lone Star Investment Advisors, and many, many others. Before we begin, I'd like to note that this episode and the four others in this series are intended for educational use only and are in no way meant to represent legal advice from either Jill or the Real Estate Council. However, we do hope you find them insightful and entertaining. Remember to subscribe to TrekCast if you haven't already. We're on most, if not all, of the major podcasting platforms, including Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. You can also follow Trek on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on everything we're doing in DFW and beyond. We'd like to thank NSAFE for sponsoring today's episode. NSAFE is a professional services firm providing engineering, environmental, health and safety, and technology services. They serve their clients from 28 locations throughout the U.S. Their offices in Dallas and Houston recently gained expanded capabilities with the addition of Cirrus Associates to their team. NSAFE's experience in addressing vapor intrusion issues focuses on cost-effective, practical evaluation and solutions. If corrective actions are needed, simple solutions are preferred, though they can also provide effective, full-scale remediation systems. A practical, common-sense approach to vapor intrusion is key. When it comes to completing ESAs, it's important to have a consultant with business sense and technical ability evaluating your property. NSAFE takes pride in that approach, and they can assist you in evaluation of properties across the state and country. To learn more, contact Senior Project Director Richard Record at 972-865-4769 or by emailing rrecord at nsafe.com. That's R-R-E-C-O-R-D at nsafe, E-N-S-A-F-E dot com. And now, here's Jill Codvis on Vapor Intrusion, right here on TrackCast. I'm going to ask you flat out, because this is a 101 level podcast series, and I really don't know anything about this topic. What is vapor intrusion? Well, it's the general term that's given to the migration of primarily volatile organic compounds from the subsurface contamination that remains in place um, into uh, an overlying building or into a building nearby. Um, and this occurs because uh, volatile organic compounds, VOCs, um, in soil or groundwater that's been contaminated are going to emit vapors. And these vapors rise up through the pore space in the soil, particularly that zone above the groundwater called the VATO zone or the unsaturated zone. Um, and the, the, the water table can fluctuate if you have a drought uh, or se seasonal precipitations can modify it. If you have pumping in the area, 
then that water table can be modified and that allows for more uh, contamination to be uh, uh, disposed through the uh, soil and up potentially into buildings. Um, additionally, where bedrock underlies a property, uh, the vapors tend to move ver uh, horizontally, so not just vertically, but they'll move along the soil which is on top of the bedrock. Um, so these vapors that are known as soil gas can move from a source either horizontally or they can move laterally. Uh, and that's why we look at this issue on both whether or not there's contamination on a property below a building or on adjacent properties that may be nearby. Um, the, the technical way this really happens is that um, diffusion causes the vapors to rise up through the soil or the bedrock, and they tend to accumulate under the building uh, or other under barriers like pavement. Um, and what happens is these barriers create a capping effect. So that inhibits the upward movement of the vapors. But if you have cracks or openings in your building and uh, in the building foundation or other barriers and they're not, uh, and they're not impenetrable, then the vapor, vapors are drawn uh, up into the building by uh, pressure differences. Um, and it's a phenomenon called de va uh, building depressurization. Um, so that will draw these vapors up into a building. Uh, both um, volatile and semi-volatile, semi if it's not too technical, <laughs> those are the ones that can evaporate more slowly. Um, they can present vapor intrusions uh, both, um, but we'll be calling them throughout my answering of any questions you have as VOCs or just all vapor intrusion. Uh, but I thought it might uh, appreciate a couple examples of what those types of contaminants uh, could be. So the semi-volatile chemicals can be degreasers. You know, if you're talking about an auto shop or a manufacturing facility that has to degrease their machines. Um, dry cleaning solvents. Uh, yes, those uh, type of solvents we have on us from our dry cleaning of our clothes. Uh, gasoline and petroleum products, like particularly benzene. Naphthalene, polychlorinated biphenyls, and certain pesticides. Uh, so those are both volatile and semi-volatile chemicals that I just mentioned. Um, primarily volatile chemicals are organic in nature, uh, but metallic mercury can also uh, be uh, volatile, and that's an inorganic uh, product. So for the environmental consultant's language, um, vapor intrusion is an exposure pathway. It's a way that we can be exposed to contaminants as humans. Um, and it's a way that people can come into contact with that environmental contaminant, then, is the most basic way to say it. Um, and it, it potentially can expose building uh, occupants um, to concentrations of vapors that could be problematic to their health, um, but primarily to those that may be um, uh, more senior, that may have a reduced lung capacity, or children who may have reduced lung capacity. Uh, but that hasn't stopped it from being a much more perceived problematic risk, just as mold and asbestos were in times past. So I'll follow that up with the 102 level question. Um, why is vapor intrusion um, such a significant concern, um, you know, nowadays? Well, you know, I've been talking about this topic for about 10 years. Um, I saw it on the horizon in looking at uh, where the EPA was uh, drafting guidance. 
uh, where lawsuits were being filed in personal injury uh, actions in the Northeast and in California. And I began talking to real estate and legal groups about it almost 10 years ago um, and uh, you know, discussing with them how it could impact your real estate transactions and development, um, how it can affect environmental closures and increase cost, and how it might lead to increased third-party claims or tort liability. Um, so the reason we got to that point is that uh, in the past, uh, when you had soil or groundwater on a site, uh, to a large extent, that contamination was not just identified and delineated, uh, but in many cases, it was also removed from the property. Contaminated soil above a state standard would be uh, just collected from the property, removed, and disposed of off-site. Groundwater would be uh, remediated in any number of ways, um, air sparging, um, uh, groundwater treatment, um, pretreatment on site, and uh, and uh, redisposition on site, and, and et cetera. There are a number of other processes. But what we have seen with the, with the blooming of the brownfield uh, development, uh, which concentrated on allowing a development of older properties that either had real or perceived issues, the types of things you particularly will find in either manufacturing areas or, or downtown infill properties, um, or old manufacturing or military installations that are now being turned into commercial uh, operations. Um, now what we're seeing, though, is that the states, taking the lead, uh, began to implement risk-based closure uh, options in the states. And what that means is that, yes, we want you to identify the extent of the contamination on site most times, uh, but we aren't going to make you remediate it. If you have something exceeding concentration, say, at residential levels, then I'll allow you to put a restrictive use on that property so that it can be only used for commercial. If I have you exceeding groundwater standards on a commercial property, then now I might be able to, instead of doing any remediation, uh, agree to a groundwater use restriction on my property, either generally or through a program in the state such as the Texas Municipal Setting Designation Program. So. Uh, and in addition, with regard to soil contamination, now we rarely clean up soil. Instead, we agree to engineering or other types of controls uh, that prevent the direct exposure and access to that soil. Uh, but that soil is not removed from the property in those cases. So that's, that was uh, the number one reason it started to become an issue. Because when you leave the contamination in place, now you have uh, an opportunity for soil gas, to be present and to um, enter buildings in the way that we discussed earlier. Um, the second reason is that the environmental due diligence standard, the all appropriate inquiries standard, and the ASTM uh, uh, procedure uh, that uh, is uh, governing the due diligence portion of the all appropriate inquiries rule um, was modified to include a requirement that you now look at vapor encroachment during a phase one environmental site assessment, doing your due diligence. Now, that doesn't mean you have to test. Specifically, it does not mean you have to test. But what it does require is that the environmental consultant look at all of the data that they've already obtained for the phase one and determine whether or not there could be a potential vapor encroachment uh, on that property, either from existing contamination on that property or contamination on nearby properties that's identified 
through the environmental database or records that they obtain from the state. Um, lawsuits for environmental liability because of vapor intrusion into neighboring properties or by employees uh, or lessees in buildings uh, began to be filed in various jurisdictions based solely on vapor intrusion issues. Um, and then, of course, what's always the most um, um, uh, engendering issue in the real estate industry is that the lenders, the banks and other lending institutions began to require that vapor intrusion be looked at as a potential issue in the phase one. And even more, they were the first ones to really begin to require that you test the soil gas or you, do, you test the indoor air to determine if that property they may provide a loan on has any vapor intrusion issues potentially. How do you determine if you do have a vapor intrusion issue and what steps should you take if you do have one? Uh, well, there are a number of methods for determining uh, whether or not you may have a vapor intrusion issue and some are calculations based on the significance of the groundwater impact or the soil concentrations of contaminants. But the primary ones that our listeners will have heard of or will be addressing um, are to collect so measures of soil gas uh, beneath a building or the soil gas out uh, below the surface of the ground, not under a building, um, or to actually uh, collect indoor air samples. Um, and both of these methods will will be used sometimes. Both are determined by the EPA to be uh, in combination, those that should be used. Uh, but they may not be ones you want to use depending on your perspective, your ownership interest uh, in the property or your, your lease interest. Um, you know, why would you use one of those over another? Well, if you're the owner or the landlord of the property, you would much prefer to have uh, an indoor air sample collected if you have to do anything, which I try to avoid, uh, because if you have no indoor air issue, then even if there is a soil gas issue, your position would be it's not affecting the indoor air. It's been there for X number of years, so it's not an issue. No, we're not going to reduce our purchase price, or no, we're not going to um, uh, agree to indemnify you, the tenant, as a consequence of this. So it, it can be... Uh, an, uh, uh, relevant in many number of ways with your contract terms or uh, whether or not it affects your purchase price or even your loan. If you're the tenant or the lender, then you don't care necessarily whether or not the indoor air is impacted now, although that's something to, you would like to know. But you want to know, is there soil gas collecting underneath the building? Because one day, if that building integrity is compromised, uh, then that soil gas could be, uh, through depressurization, uh, brought into the indoor air. And so your your preference is, let's see if I could have a future issue, and then I'll address it in my lease or my loan documents uh, or my purchase contract. Um, now, in an as-is transaction, again, if you're not allowing any sampling uh, in your as-is transaction, then you need to make sure that you list the fact that they are not allowed to do vapor intrusion testing along with they're not allowed to do mold testing, asbestos testing, whatever the specific types of testing are in addition to the fact that you do not want them to collect soil or groundwater Sorry, let me samples. Just stop here for a second. Um, is that part of the how do you determine question or is that the how does it affect It's more over it's more of the perspective of it's the you know what's your perspective that I just went through about the owner landlord 
Okay. I just want to make sure that we're not going to repeat more info in the next section. Okay. Well, that, no, that issue is actually one that sounds familiar to you because we addressed it in mold when we said how it should be listed specifically in a phase one uh, out scope of work. But, okay. But if you don't want that part, you're welcome oh, to no, that's, cut it that's out. Okay. Yeah, the next part is how is it mitigated? Yeah, I'm assuming you're going to listen to this, and if something doesn't make sense, you'll, yeah, in, okay. in the order of things. Sure. Okay. Um, well, the good news about vapor intrusion is that if you have an issue, it's, while it's not inexpensive to mitigate, it can be mitigated, and it's not that costly. Um, and there are uh, several primary measures for doing that. You can do the old-fashioned mitigation way, which is to go in and remove the contaminated soil or remediate the contaminated groundwater that's the offending source of the vapor intrusion or the soil gas concentrations. But more likely, you're going to take one of the following two measures. You're going to install a sub-slab depressurization system, uh, which will collect the soil gas below the building and will then make it exit outside of the building. Uh, and or if it's new construction, uh, you would also uh, implement a, a sub-slab barrier specifically for the purpose of vapor intrusion. Um, the, the direct costs of these are minimal compared to the value that they can add to new development or to retrofitting an existing development. Because if you implement these best practices, then it's going to be very difficult um, for an employee or a purchaser or other party that is attempting to um, uh, make you liable or sue you for liability for vapor intrusion in indoor air uh, on your property to say that you didn't take the right actions, you were negligent, and therefore you are liable to them for any uh, human health effect they may be experiencing. How does vapor intrusion affect real estate transactions and development? Uh, well, it can affect several ways, and I'll um, uh, try not to get into too much detail here. Uh, but um, obviously, with it now being a requirement that uh, vapor encroachment potential be reviewed as part of a phase one, there's been added cost to the phase one process and added time potentially. Um, for instance, if you have a consultant that is preparing a phase one and is opining that uh, there's a vapor encroachment issue uh, or could be from an off-site potential source, but they haven't pulled the records from the TCEQ, our state agency, to review uh, what is the extent of the groundwater plume and is it really near the property, is it within 100 feet of the building, to really form a, a substantiated judgment on whether or not there could be a vapor encroachment issue, then that can add time and cost to pull those records and uh, and to uh, uh, obtain the more favorable conclusions if needed. Um, it can also affect uh, real estate transactions, um, both the purchase price and the terms of the agreement. As we uh, reviewed earlier, um, it can uh, make a property less desirable. Um, it can impact the property value. And these potential risks not only redefine the due diligence uh, scope of work, but they're going to redefine the contract terms and who's liable for what and how much investigation will the purchaser or the lender require or, or need before they'll go through with the transaction. Um, this is similar under the environmental uh, uh, issues that arise in the lease agreements. And uh, 
if the lessee is actually doing the due diligence and determines there could be an issue, then they're going to require mitigation measures by the landlord. They may require indemnity by the landlord or frequent indoor air testing. Um, and uh, in certain states, such as New York, there's a notification law. So if you have a tenant uh, and you determine that you may or could have an indoor air issue involving vapor intrusion, uh, you're required to provide notice to those tenants in that state. Uh, it can affect your loan documents specifically along the same lines that we talked about with purchasing and lease issues. Um, and it can affect your real estate development uh, issues. Um, if vapor intrusion is now an exposure pathway, then you want to make sure that you're designing your, your building uh, to incorporate this subslab vapor barrier and a venting system, a subslab depressurization system. It's less expensive and it works more effectively if you can implement it during your design and construction than if you have to come, come after the fact and retrofit the building. Um, and then lastly, if you have uh, a remediation action or if what you've determined during the phase one and phase two on your transaction is gonna lead to uh, having, a, having to file an action with the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, then the fact that you have a vapor intrusion or soil gas issue is going to uh, affect the remediation, how much it costs, or I should say the closure because remediation may not be required. Uh, the TCQ has in fact been um, much more frequently and much more strongly uh, requiring uh, soil gas testing and indoor air testing on particularly volunte voluntary cleanup program actions in the state. Uh, and in, they have been requiring mitigation measures be implemented in those cases where you have uh, uh, exceedances of the indoor air standards. Um, those standards, uh, by the way, are both at the state level, risk-based closure levels, and at the federal level, EPA has a calculator called the Vapor Intrusion Screening Level Calculator. Now, the last item uh, on how this can affect liability and transactions is that uh, it can increase your liability risk. So any potential perceived or real vapor intrusion in indoor air uh, can lead to litigation. It can lead to effect on your brand. It can lead to effect on your reputation. It can lead to community actions or uh, municipal actions uh, attempting to involve themselves in a particularly um, heightened uh, news item about a particular building or significant vapor intrusion issue. So that's also something to consider in reviewing uh, uh, vapor intrusion and whether or not you want to do those types of measurements. And of course, those then can add to, to increased risks of litigation. That's all for today's episode of TrackCast. I'd like to thank Jill Kovnis for navigating us through vapor intrusion. Subscribe to TrackCast wherever you get your podcasts and follow Trek on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Once again, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.